0: not feeling well. I have a two-year-old son named Baxter, and he is just hes just my favorite little guy to hang out with. And my wife happens to be in Carmel this weekend because she's taking my daughter to the Nutcracker there. And so, um, I, the, the the you know, I was really looking forward to coming and, and preaching here, so thank you for having me. But I wake up, and I start to get my son into the car, and he just throws up everywhere. Um, now, I, I did one of those things where I, like, took him out of the car, and I just kind of held him and let him do his thing. And I know that may be graphic and not the thing that you want to come to church and hear on a Sunday morning, but that that's how I started off today. So um, uh, I was like trying not to get him stuff on my shoes. and I was like, gross kid. Um, but uh, you guys can be praying for him. He is at home. And so I didn't know what to do to get here. And so um, actually part of my story is this. Um, uh, I Grew up in Germany, and I actually knew Rob when I was in high school, and Rob was a dorm parent. Um, Rob and Kathy were dorm parents there, and so um, they saw me in my worst high school moments and in my best high school moments um, but, but they 've been um, lifelong friends of not only me but my family as well and so uh, when I came to America, uh, my parents were living in Germany and they, they lived in Germany until this last August actually. Um, but I, I, uh, I went to a school up in Oregon, and I met this guy named Kyle, and he, was, he lived in the room next to me. And so I, I met him, and I hung out with him, and Kyle was a cool guy. And um, I started working at this camp called Mount Hermon, and uh, that's where I met my wife. And I invited Kyle to come down, and Kyle met his wife as well. And uh, her name is Sarah Abramson, which is actually their daughter <laughs> right over here. And um, so Kyle was my first friend in America. And um and Kyle and Sarah have become very close to my wife and I and, and um actually Kyle is watching my sick child right now <laughs> this morning so uh, thank you for um, <laughs> Kyle and Sarah thank you Kyle for allowing me to come here and preach to you guys this morning and I I am excited and blessed to be here um, I think you guys have a great pastor in Rob McEvoy. I think he really understands the gospel uh, in a, in a profound way and I think grace is not lost on him so. I hope that you're thankful to have him as your pastor here. So if you would join me in opening to Isaiah chapter 9. Now, apparently this was the first verse that you guys read last week, right? Um, But I'm going to preach on it, uh, first verse of Advent. I'm going to preach on it this week. So can somebody just tell me and be honest, did somebody preach on Isaiah 9 last week? Okay, good, okay, all right. (laughs) I just want to be very clear. I would hate to have sort of... Oh, it's okay. <laughs> so anyhow, this is this is the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter nine. We're gonna read verses one through seven. Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke and burden, and bur- that burdens them—the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning; will be the fuel for their fire. For unto us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on david's throne over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time from that time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. So I am excited to preach on this passage. If you've grown up in church or if you've been around Christmas, uh, the the Christian understanding of Christmas at any time, you'll probably have heard this passage before, or at least phrases in this passage. We sing them in uh, certain Christmas songs, this whole idea of a wonderful counselor, uh, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and it's it's a famous passage, and I think it's one that actually probably has uh, more need today for a Christian for the Christians to understand and for our world to understand why we think Christmas is such a big deal, and particularly why we believe the hope that Christmas brings is such a big deal. Why is hope such a big deal around Christmas time, and why is it so important, especially for Christians? Well, when you think of Christmas, uh, what do you think of in your mind? What do you think of when it comes to Christmas? I, I think of the first thing that pops into my mind is lights. And the reason that the first thing that pops into my mind as lights is that when I w- grew up in Germany, there were these markets downtown. And uh, Germany, you know, for the most part has pretty cold and dreary weather during the, the winter time. And um, you go to these markets in the evening and they're called Chris Kendall Markt, I think I'm saying that right. And um, they're Christmas markets, and they have these wooden booths around, and it's very, uh, it's very sort of sentimental, and there's, it's very sort of culturally uh, cute, I guess. <laughs> but you have, you get your, uh, you know, your bratwurst, and you have these, a bunch of different little gifts that you can buy people, and you go around, and the thing that sort of marks these Chris Kendall Marts is that they're full of light. There's lights all around, white lights all around. And people are out there, and they're in these um, you know, old German towns downtown. and it's just a really fun experience. But that's the first thing I think of when I think of Christmas is this, the idea of, of light. Um, and so when I uh, you know, got married and, um, and I wouldn't go home for, uh, to Germany for Christmas, we started to kind of make our own traditions. Um, when it comes, when it, when it, you know, we would traditionally go to the Chris Kendall Martin, and then we I got married, and we started to make our own tradition. And so the second thing I think of when I think of Christmas is, um, I think of fondue. <laughs> and the reason I think of fondue is because uh, my wife and I would oftentimes be traveling during the Christmas times, whether it was to her place or to another place or whatever. And so uh, the night, you know, before we would leave for Christmas, we were like, okay, we got to take everything in the fridge and use it, right? Because we're going on these trips. And so um, what better way to sort of dip everything in the fridge that you don't know how to use than just dip it in melted cheese. <laughs> and so that's what we would do. And, um, and so that's kind of like this thing that I got to think about when it comes to Christmas. We still do it. We make this tradition. Uh, growing up, it was going to this festival of booze and lights and these types of things, and then all of a sudden it turned into this having fondue. Um, that's just what I think of when it comes to Christmas. But what do you guys think of? I'll never forget a couple years ago when uh, my uh, my daughter came out of her room. She was two at the time, and she uh, she saw this thing, and uh, she ran all past all her presents, right? Other presents. She ran past the tree, and I saw the expression on her face. She was so happy because she saw for the very first time her brand new potty, and she loved it. She was like, "Oh, this is so great." That that experience is kind of stuck in my mind, too. It's like, who cares about the other cool stuff that mom and dad bought? You bought me this little potty. And um, she just sat on it for all Christmas morning. Um, and uh, it, again, it was one of those kind of moments where um, I thought Christmas brings so much joy in, in, in all these things, um, especially to kids and maybe to us, maybe these sentimental feelings. But um, I don't think... Christmas to Christians should be mainly about feeling sentimental or feeling sort of um, uh, good about having family around. Of course, it's no, those are nice things and those are good things, but I don't think that should be the main thing that sort of centers our hearts as a Christian community. I think the main thing should be hope. You see, uh, hope sometimes gets hijacked by, like, sort of sentimentality or dismissed in our sarcastic world. Um, However, everybody has hope. Everybody has hope. You, if you were to peel away the layers of your heart, would find foundational hope in something. Uh, Hope is an anticipated outcome. If you didn't have hope, you would die. You wake up every morning, you, me, the rest of the world, we wake up every morning hoping that something is going to happen, hoping that we're going to be received, maybe we'll receive income for the work that we've done. You see, where your hope is, that's where your heart is. That's where your real heart is. Now, the passage we just read from Isaiah is full of hope, but not in things that we often put our hopes in. Uh, to give you some context, Isaiah was writing from Jerusalem during the reign of King Ahaz. And Israel, under King Ahaz, had made alliances with surrounding nations to protect them from the threat of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was real, and it was scary. In fact, they were brutal. They were perhaps maybe the most brutal empire that's lived in the existence of, modern, uh, or of history. So uh, this would have been considered at that time a politically logical move, uh, but was directly disobeying God because he commanded, God, if you remember, God commanded his people to always put their hope and trust in who? In him, not in political alliances. And yet you can understand the tension here for for the people of Israel. I mean, it's a real threat to them. They feel it. It's visceral. And so God's people turned to earthly institution and namely the government for safety and ultimately they put their hope in this alliance. Not only did they turn to political alliances but they also turned to uh, sort of uh, earthly experiences to give them guidance and hope. In in verses 8 and chapter 8 verses 19 through 20 uh, God describes what's happening. I'll just read it to you real quick. Uh, 19 through 20 chapter 8. This is what was happening, this is what the people of Israel were doing. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. So, what was happening was uh, the people were turning to uh, uh, the spiritualists um, to talk, to get uh, uh, um, advice from, and they were putting their hope in sort of mediums. Uh, now, if you know anything about the Old Testament law, you know that God commanded His people to not consult with them, uh, to not consult with fortune-tellers. Uh, but they were worried. They had these nations around them that were surrounding them. And so, of course, they did this. They said, yes, God, we love you and we trust you, but really we're going to try to find out the future. We're going to really try to find out what we should do through consulting mediums. See, the people were putting their hope in man-made ideologies. They were putting their hope in themselves. And this is why Isaiah records that those people were lost They were distressed, they were famished, and they were enraged. And this darkness or gloom was the result in their lives of not putting their hope in God. Now, you may be uh, tempted to sort of dismiss the idea um, that, uh, you know, uh, these people were putting their hopes in mediums. We would not do that. I don't gather that many, many, most of you... um, We'll come to church and then we'll go out and go to you know, have your tarot cards read or something like that. Uh, you probably won't do that. But the truth is this. Uh, before you dismiss the Israelites as foolish for not hoping in God, let us be reminded of our own deepest personal hopes. We may not feel the uh, uh, sort of threat of an evading country, but we look for hope outside of God within our own cultural context, even within our own co- Christian culture. I think of our culture uh, our cultural and political feel right now. Uh, how many people have put their hope and are either destroyed or joyful in our political um, affiliations? Uh, how true is that of our Christian culture uh, i had a, I had a conversation with a woman who said, um, My day goes well or bad, depending on who controls the House and the Senate now. Before you dismiss that, (laughs) that is true of many people, maybe even some people here. It's easy to sort of look at Israel and say, well, they just couldn't get it right. But we have our own things, don't we? Uh, Maybe you've had this experience. My day goes good or bad depending on how my kid reacts, how my child is doing. My hope is in my child's outcome. I work with high school students, and uh, you know what their hope is, most of them? Uh, They may say, even in the church, that my hope is in God. But their real hope is to get into college. And anything that threatens that, or anything that sort of um, may cause that not to happen, uh, that's what causes them a huge amount of distress, and I'll tell you that, um, and I didn't, I didn't realize this, um, I probably didn't place enough emphasis on this when I first got into, uh, uh, when I first started working in high school ministry again. But um, the depression rate and the anxiety rate and the suicide rate is astronomically high among the, uh, between San Francisco and Palo Alto of teenagers, even maybe kids that go to the school. And the reason is because their hope, is largely in their ability to perform. And before we sort of look at students and say, wow, they really need to grow up, one of the reasons why their hope is in their ability to perform is because their parents' hope is in their ability for their kids to perform. We want to launch our kids? Yes, that's good. That's good to want to launch our kids. It's good to do well in school. It's good to want to do well in school. It's good. College is good, right? But... When it becomes the ultimate hope, it can either destroy you or it can make you feel confident in your own self. I made it. I've I've worked hard enough. I have the ability. Again, hope is the thing that drives us. Now, we're surrounded by messages beckoning our hearts to hope in what we can control and measure, in shiny objects and personalities that promise us security and happiness. During this time of year, we are told to hope in sentimentality. We are told to put our hope in humanity's ability to pull ourselves out of the darkness of evil. The New York Times had an ad that attempted to define Christmas in our day and age. And this is what the New York Times said. The New York Times said, the meaning of Christmas, pay attention here, "the the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Sounds good, right? (laughs) Sounds good. Union, peace, we like those things. Christians should like those things. Those are good things. It sounds nice, but pay attention to the emphasis of where the hope lies. The hope is that humanity can do it if we just get together and try. Our text this morning shows us that this idea is actually not new. It's just repackaged in terms that sound sentimental to us. Just like the Israelites placed their hope in the political alliance and mystic superstition, our society and ability—our uh, society tends to place our hope in humans' ability, in science, in education, in prosperity, one false hope after the other. What's the great hope of the uh, San Francisco Peninsula? Technology. If we just produce enough and get enough out there, the world will be a better place. Technology is good. Education is good. Prosperity is good, but it is not the ultimate thing. It's not where we ultimately place our hope. And this leads us to the question: what should God's people hope for? What should God's people hope for? What does our church hope for? What does this church hope for? If we were to peel away our hearts, what is it that you really placing? Where is it that you're placing your hope? Now, the story of God's people continually warns us, especially in the Old Testament, that when the ultimate hope and trust is in anything that God, that ultimate hope becomes our God. If you ultimately hope in something that is not God, you are walking around in darkness. And actually, the Bible says here that you will be distressed even more. When earthly hopes are ultimate, they leave us famished, they, leaves our, they leave our souls in darkness. anxiety. And at the time of Isaiah's writing, he and a faithful remnant who stayed near to God found themselves surrounded by a a godly Israelite culture who was actually walking in darkness because of their displaced hope. The gloom had set in, and I'm sure that even for Isaiah and his small band of God-fearing people, he was surrounded by people who started to Uh, started to lose hope a little bit. I wonder if even Isaiah started to lose hope a little bit. And yet, God gives Isaiah a vision of the gospel, and so after describing the dismal reality of hopelessness apart from God in chapter 8, he begins in chapter 9, pay attention to the words, nevertheless, or but. Chapter 9. Now this is a, uh, uh, we should be thinking automatically of how the New Testament does this. Remember how Paul, oftentimes in his letters, will he'll say, this is sin, but God. But God save you by grace. But God did this, but this, but this, but this. If you read the New Testament, uh, especially Paul's letters, you always find that there's the reality of sin, and then there's the reality of grace. And this is what's happening here. Uh, Isaiah says, this is the reality of your sin. Nevertheless, or but, there will be no gloom. He's going to do something And he's going to do something in the least likely of places, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, known as Galilee. Now, uh, you should know something about Naphtali and Zebulun. Uh, It may be just two names that we dismiss, but that land, that part of Israel, was actually the part where the conquering nations would always pass through that region to 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 go to Jerusalem and conquer Israel. You see, uh, the Assyrians would pass through there eventually. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, so on and so forth. Everybody would pass through that part of Israel to go to Jerusalem. And yet from this region, this backwater, good-for-nothing place that was known as Galilee, Isaiah says God is going to bring salvation. Isaiah is so sure of this so sure of this hope that he actually writes in the past tense as if it already happened. He writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now think of the contrast there. Pay attention to the verb. A light has dawned. What is the contrast between the light dawning upon somebody and our New York Times article that says there is intrinsic light in people. Do you see that? See, Isaiah is saying you are not able to put together a world of peace and unity. That light is not within you, but a light is coming and it's going to come upon you. So what effect does this light have? Well, light breaks up darkness, of course. Light gives direction. Light reveals what is real. Light, according to the Gospel of John, expresses sinful desires of mankind, and it also expresses our hope in this Messiah. For us who put our hope in false things, light shows us something true to hope for. For those who want to know God and put their hope in Him, this light that Isaiah is looking forward to will be incredibly joyful. In Matthew, in his gospel in four twelve, Matthew 4.12, he quotes this passage to describe the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And what is the result of the ministry of Jesus? Well, it leads to what? Inclusion and multiplication. Look at the verse here. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. What did Jesus bring? Well, The work of the Messiah, Jesus, his coming kingdom, was not regulated or were not relegated to an ethnic group anymore. There's not an ethnic distinction of God's people. There's a spiritual distinction of God's people. There no longer is there Jew or Gentile. There's now one people. That's an important point. Isaiah is not just writing about how the nation of Israel is going to be saved. He's talking about how God's people are going to be saved. So the church, you and I, anybody who is found in Christ, has actually been brought into all the promises of Israel. We can claim all those promises, including this promise here, because of Jesus, because of his work. The harvest that Isaiah mentions is far more important than any harvest that maybe we've celebrated. I know we just celebrated Thanksgiving, and... uh, (laughs) I showed my daughter um, the Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, not Christmas Thanksgiving, where they come over and they they're you know they don't know how to make food or something like that, and so the dog tries to make food and he doesn't do well, and then uh, you know the Native Americans uh, provide food and Charlie Brown is all happy and. And uh, I was thinking, what a, wow, what an uncomplex view of Thanksgiving. But, um, but you know, uh, it's Charlie Brown, so it worked. And my daughter loved it. And she said, oh, that's, that's why we should be thankful, because we have food. And I said, yeah, we should be thankful, because we have food. And we should be thankful for our harvest. But that's not the harvest that Isaiah is necessarily talking about here. He's not necessarily talking about a food harvest. He's talking about a spiritual harvest, a robust spiritual harvest. He's talking about you and me. Uh, the reality is that God has many people. Who he has brought into his harvest because of this promise. And he has many people yet to bring into his harvest. See, Isaiah uh, illuminates three tenets of this messianic hope, each beginning with four. So let's look, uh, verse four. Here we go. For on the day, uh, uh, for in the day of Midian's defeat, uh, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Now this language, of course, is supposed to remind us of the oppression of God's people under Pharaoh. The exodus of God's people that, uh, that that brought his people out of Egypt was led by a mediator, Moses. And in the New Testament's very clear that it, this actually is a spiritual picture of God bringing us out of the oppression of sin. The mediator was Moses. Our mediator is Jesus Christ. And Isaiah draws on this picture of, of Israel's past history of bringing out Um, from oppression, and he says Jesus is going to bring people out of the true oppression, which is this, the oppression of sin, the oppression of hopelessness. You see, true hope does not rest on our ability to rescue our hearts, our spiritual condition, from the slavery of sin. Much like the people of Israel cannot be brought out of Egypt by themselves, Isaiah says that the true hope is going to be found when somebody brings us out. We can't do it ourselves, we need somebody to do it on our behalf, to bring us out. That's the first thing that this Messiah is going to be. The second thing, the second hope, for every boot, uh, for every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel to the fire. This phrase was actually introduced in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 when the promised Messiah would end war. Now think about that. The end of war. What's true about Israel's history? They were always fighting somebody, right? Somebody was always attacking them. Uh, they were always fighting somebody. And yet, uh, Isaiah says that there will be no use, more use for war with this Messiah. Now, to the original audience, you know, war was a constant. This must have been an incredible thought wait a second, we don't have to defend ourselves anymore from all these large nations. When the Messiah comes, his people will not need to sort of um, get on their armor and go out and face the Goliaths of the day. No. When the Messiah comes, there will be no geographical kingdom. There will be a spiritual kingdom. And God's people will have no need to defend themselves in the sense that... What's the great thing about being a part of the kingdom of God? You can kill us, but you can't destroy us, right? We live forever with this promise that we will live forever in eternal glory in God's kingdom. Uh, We don't face oppression in in our society. I mean, not real oppression, you know, like other nations face. We might face some slight oppression, and we do. That we don't face the real oppression, but I'll tell you that the hope for us should never be in trying to avoid oppression. The hope should never be in trying to live a comfortable life. Because the reality is, for God's people, we're always going to be under some sort of spiritual attack, just like the people of Israel were. But our hope is not living in a peaceful, comfortable life now. It's living in the peaceful and comfortable life with God being the center of it in the future. And the church is the temporary expression of that. You and I today. So we are not called to avoid war. We're not called to enter into war. (laughs) We're called to live for God. And if oppression comes upon us, if violence comes upon us, we know, again, you can hurt us. You can kill us. You can take all these things from us, but you cannot destroy us because God's people in his kingdom live forever. Now, Isaiah describes uh, this hope uh, one more time. The last one, it says in verse 6, how is all this going to be possible? How is this kingdom going to be instituted? How are we going to uh, not have to save ourselves and this is, this is how it's going to happen, all right? Here's the, here's the game plan. Ready in verse 6. All these things are going to happen because a child is going to be born. A child. A child is going to be born. All hope for eternal redemption, all hope for eternal peace, all hope for God's people is going to come in a baby we hang all our hopes not on the intelligence of professionals or academic proliferation, not on the might of a nuclear arsenal, not on the expression of the most creative artists, not on technological advancement. All our hope is found in an uneducated, illiterate, blue-collar family of refugees who had this baby and his name is Jesus. And he is the dawn that's going to shy, shine on all of us. You see, there were so many unfaithful kings who would come between Israel, between when Isaiah wrote this and when Jesus was born. But when Jesus was born, uh, God's creation came, right? The, light, the angels came, The kings of different uh, nations came, and they bowed before him as the king of the world. It was a royal birth to a completely insignificant family in the eyes of the world. How could we hope, how could all our hopes ride on a baby? Shouldn't they ride on somebody who's famous and popular, and shouldn't they ride on somebody who's smart and somebody who knows what they're doing and all these things. No, God actually says, and this is the way that God works, don't trust in the things that you think are powerful. Trust in the things that you think are weak. You know, Jesus went to the cross, and his followers all abandoned him because they thought, I thought you were going to bring us into your kingdom. I thought you were going to do these things. And he said, uh, the first thing you have to do to enter the kingdom is you have to die You have to die to yourself. And I think that's what, in a sense, uh, Isaiah is saying here. You know all these things that are going to happen, nation of Israel. You know all the hopes that you have and all the fears you have. You're going to have to trust in the weakest person, the weakest thing in the world, a baby. And when you do, here are three things that you're going to be given. You're going to be given me, the Son of God, The king whose kingdom will rest upon his ability to keep it. This is Jesus. He's entered into our darkness. He's a wonderful counselor. People were finding their counsel in the mystics and the experts of the day, which kept them in the darkness. But a small child would have true wisdom and offer hope, far beyond any man-made methodology. By the way, um, as a point of application... I think it's important to note that it's easy for us today to look at Jesus, to look at the, the Bible and say, that, that's great, but what I really need to hear, I really need to tone, turn on like Oprah or Dr. Phil and find something, really, that's going to help me. Um, I've noticed this in my own heart. Um, I think counseling is wonderful. I think biblical counseling is really, really, really good, and I really like it. I think it's really helpful. Um, But I know this, that no amount of counseling or Oprah or Chicken Soup for the Soul or self-help books or whatever is going to help me as much as God's word and my relationship with him. My main problem in my marriage, my main problem in your marriage, the way that your marriage is going to be rescued, the hope for your marriage is not in your ability to sort of seek and be shaped by counseling. It's in your ability to be shaped and and seek who God is and be shaped by his word. I'm not dismissing counseling. I'm not diminishing it. I think it's really helpful. Um, I've been helped by it. But I know that my main problem is not trying to get my wife to change, not trying to get my kids to change, not trying to get my country or my culture or my church to do what I want them to do. My main problem is me turning my will over to God. And how do I do that? How am I counseled in that? How am I instructed in that? By looking at Jesus. He's our wonderful counselor. And not only that, but he's our mighty God. That's what it says. Our wonderful counselor, mighty God. This child is not just human. He's not just God's anointed king. He's actually God himself. God came down. He became weak so he could become weak, become strong. Remember what Paul said? When I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Remember what John the Baptist said? He understood this. I must decrease so that he must increase. I wonder if the church would be benefited not from showing how good we are, or how perfect we are, or even how strong we are, but how weak we are, and how mighty is our God. John Calvin put it this way, if we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of a man, our glorying will be foolish in vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation but if he shows himself to be God, the mighty God, we now rely on him with safety, with good reason that he, Isaiah, calls uh, with good reason Isaiah calls him strong and mighty, because our contest is with the devil, death and sin, enemies too powerful and strong, by whom we would immediately be vanquished if the strength of Christ had not rendered us invincible. Thus we learn from this title, mighty God, that there is in Christ Abundance of protection for defending our salvation, so that we desire nothing beyond Him, for He is God, who is pleased to show Himself strong in our behalf. And last, uh, last two titles: everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Uh, as Calvin again points uh, points out throughout the eternity of time that the everlasting Father bestows bestows immortality on the corporate body and the individual members. In other words, our hope is not in our temporary earthly lives, but in this child who unites us with himself and gives us the Father. If we speak in Trinity terms here, Jesus became a man. The Holy Spirit has given us faith in him. And he gives us the father. The fatherless now have a father. And at Christmas, I know it can be hard because we remember times maybe with our earthly father, whether he was good or bad. Maybe we are missing a father this Christmas. But the hope that we have for having a family is that we have a heavenly father who's going to look after us, not just in this lifetime, but who's going to look after us in eternity. And the last title we read, of Prince of Peace. You see, separation from God, which is hopelessness, brings about restlessness and distress. And Isaiah describes those who put their hope in anything but God as greatly distressed and hungry and gloom and anguish. This is the life apart from the hope of God. However, this child has the title of Prince of Peace. What peace? Of course, between God and man, yes. Uh, you remember the carol, Hark the herald angels sing, Hail to the newborn king, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And this is the tension that our culture cannot escape with Christmas. The peace, This peace the Christmas carols refer to is not sentimental snow globes or spice cider or Buddy the Elf It's the peace that we find when we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross. And when we come to the end of ourselves, that's when we have peace. We will never understand why we need Christmas until we understand this point. To admit that we cannot save ourselves, that we need the Prince of Peace, the the Prince who is God, takes great humility. Pride says that we can try to be better by Uh, We can try to get better by being better. However, if we humble ourselves and let our hope to be nothing but a child, then we find our peace with God and our peace with ourselves. We can endure the most wild storms of life when the hope of our hearts is grounded in the light of the gospel and is grounded in what has already happened and what is not yet to happen completely. So how does the kingdom of Jesus bring about uh, uh, a peace that brings no end? He does this by establishing the qualities of justice and righteousness, and he does this on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus took your sin and he died for it fully. The wrath of God on your sin was poured out on this baby boy, his son, and he also gave you his righteousness. You see, God could not account for our unrighteousness, for Israel's unrighteousness, but he could on the cross because he took the righteousness of Jesus and he gave it to us and he took our guilt and he placed it on Jesus. And that's the hope that we have. And any hope that we sort of tell people about, tell our own hearts about, that's apart from that good news, will ultimately leave them walking around in darkness. So the hope that we have the hope that our churches have, the hope that our hearts can rest in, is this. Unto us a child is born, and his name is Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in you. I pray that this hope would settle our hearts with all the anxiety, with all the worry that we walk into this room. I pray that this hope would settle our churches with all the anxiety and the pressures that we have. And ultimately, Father, I pray that this hope would settle us enough where we would give glory to you. We would make much of Jesus, and we'd make little of ourselves. Father, we pray that you would increase and we would decrease. Amen.